China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Jack Zhang, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Kansas. Jack, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Big fan of the show. I wanted to start off, as, as I always do, by asking about your intellectual journey to the set of issues we're going to be talking about today, your work on U.S.-China trade relations, trade frictions. Uh, we got to know each other when you were a promising, bright PhD student at uh, UC San Diego. How did, you, how did you get to UCSD? How did you select for your dissertation, some of your subsequent work, this intersection of, of trade and politics? Yeah, so I, I first had the opportunity to work as a, a China researcher at the Eurasia Group after I graduated from Duke and before I applied to graduate school. And that period of time was really critical in, in sort of sparking an interest in the intersection of international business and international politics in Asia, specifically in China. So arriving at UCSD, got to work with really great mentors like Victor Xi, Susan Shirk, Steph Haggard, and, and, and many more folks to really develop both of those strands, sort of the, the IR piece and the China piece. And, and the, the dissertation project and my current kind of research agenda really came into focus after a Fulbright trip in, in Beijing, where we overlap a little bit as well. So I was based at, at, uh, at Beidai, and the initial sort of goal was to study the political risk multinationals have to deal with as a result of military conflict. Right? China was engaging in more uh, assertive military behavior in, in this period of time, 2014, 2015, the beginning of this meme, right? And, and I wanted to go and, and figure out if MNCs uh, were responding to this. And the funny thing is that that was kind of a dismal failure in, in the original design, because when I talked to executives and analysts who, who worked on this, this was not sort of front and center in the minds of multinationals in China, right? The military conflict far away that doesn't result in actual wars didn't really impact the operations of big companies in China in any, you know, any substantive way. But what they did care about and what I did learn more about um, is the mounting sort of regulatory risks and the uneven playing field that really became kind of the impetus, right, of of a lot of the trade frictions that blew up in, in the trade war. And so I didn't start working on anything sort of trade war related until my postdoc at the Niehaus Center at Princeton. And you know, there 2018 to 19, right, was right when this massive escalation is happening. It seemed like a really exciting sort of set of topics. And, and so I took that set of projects and began to pursue it at greater depth at, at KU. And you've got now at University of Kansas, you have this trade war lab. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the lab is set up, how you do work and, and what some of the outputs of the, of, of the lab are? Absolutely. So the KU Trade War Lab works on three research agendas um, currently. So the first is China's use of economic coercion, um, including tariffs, but also other kinds of sanctions and economic interdependence. The second agenda is the experience of multinationals in the trade war and the politics, domestic politics in particular, of tariffs, which we'll talk about today. And then the third, uh, a number of other projects related to um, other political actors like Congress, Chambers of Commerce, the public, and their response in this. And the Trade War Lab was set up. Um, I had the idea, brought the gem of the idea to KU, was fortunate to be able to raise funding, um, get some seed funding internally, raise some external funding 
and uh, we have three PhD students now and 10 undergraduate research assistants. I'm looking to hire um, a few more undergraduate RAs. And we work in project-based teams on these on these projects with myself, with a, a graduate student sort of co-authoring and a, a team of undergraduates to, to help with that data collection process. And that mentoring sort of is, is done this way as well. And so I'm uh, really happy with what we've been able to accomplish in our first sort of official year of existence will be this August and September. Hope to continue sort of the, the track record that we built in, in fundraising and in, in you know, publishing work and building data sets uh, in this area. So the, the bulk of our discussion today is going to talk about some of the research that you've been co-authoring, thinking about how multinational corporations or MNCs are impacted by slash adjusting to I sorry, I should say MNCs that are in China are adjusting to or being affected by US-China trade war. But I wanted to clear some ground first on a term which is front and center of the discussion right now, not only as it results to the trade war, but in the broader discussion of the, the level of integration between the US and China, and that is decoupling. And it, it's one of these contested words where it has a, a scientific definition and a normative component as well. There are some who, for their own policy or preferences, want decoupling to happen. There are others who, for their you know normative ethical principles, don't want decoupling to happen. But it's also should have its own. It should be a measuring stick, which we can all agree on. An inch is an inch, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So when you think about the term decoupling as it is operative in your own research, what do you think about or what do you mean when you use the word decoupling? Yeah, so it's a great question. And, and this is definitely treacherous ground. In fact, uh, my, my co-author Sam Worthams and I were stirred away from this because, you know, because of the lack of a consensus on the definition, right? So I would say there's a recent piece by Joe Nye in the Washington Quarterly where he breaks down the dimensions of decoupling or coupling between U.S. and China. And he talks about sort of, you know, trade, investment, technology, capital markets, currency markets, people to people exchanges like education, as well as the political military and then the environmental sort of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on because the U.S.-China relationship is, you know, multidimensional and complex. And his point in this piece is basically that the relationship could be trending in different directions at, at different times. Um, and what we focus on in this paper is on the trade and investment dimension, right? FDI and trade is that being impacted by the uh, escalation of tariffs in particular, but the trade war in general, right? Um, is, is it is it reducing the flows? But I think your, your, your question about decoupling, what it means, you're right that there's a normative dimension to it. I think there's also a People uh, tend to, because of that normative thing, cherry pick, I guess, uh, specific anecdotes and examples, right? And you see, like one thing we looked into in our, in our paper is there are different polls that you can cite that say that either decoupling is happening or that it's not happening, right? Depending on who you ask and how you sample, right? You can find evidence that a lot of companies, foreign companies are planning to leave China or have already left or that they're not, right? And it's because I think, you know, when you, when you study China, my, my, my favorite sort of uh, um, analogy for it is the blind man and the elephant, right? It's a big enough and complex enough of a place that if you seize one piece of evidence and say that this represents sort of the whole thing, you may be sort of mistaken, right? That the whole elephant is a, is a fan or is a, 
is, you know, a pillar or something like that. You won't see sort of the whole picture. And what we try to do in this piece in some ways is to put as systematic of, as possible of data, looking at multinationals and their registration in China to get a sense of this trade and investment dimension in particular of, of whether, you know, political risk is happening there or not. You know, in terms of other dimensions, like in the, in the Nye article, he talks about how capital markets and currency markets, there's no decoupling happening there, right? But we see market sort of changes in technology collaboration, for example. We, we, we saw that in recent um, weeks and months, right, with regulations of uh, technology companies in both U.S. and China, greater scrutiny. We see more of this in terms of uh, education exchanges and the China Initiative in trying to scrutinize you know, researchers, Chinese researchers in the United States, uh, for example. So there's definitely dimensions in which the relationship is shifting, right? And so I guess Long answer, right? To, to summarize, like, how do you think about and measure decoupling? You have to be clear on what dimension we're talking about, right? But you also have to be clear about whether we're talking about a shift in, you know, a change, right? If the direction changes, does that mean decoupling is happening or not happening, right? Versus sort of the volume of, of change, right? Because there's a lot of underlying relationship already. The flow is really big, Right. And so you can say that decoupling is not happening because there's still a lot of trade between the U.S. and China. Right. You could also say decoupling is happening because the trade in this particular product may have been you know, impacted by tariffs. Right. And so that's why we need to look at it comprehensively and try to you know, put data behind these rather than anecdotes. Right. And, and analyzing this. We're going to have an, an example of this pretty shortly when we start to see either delistings of Chinese companies in New York who then relist in Hong Kong. And you could look at that and say, well, there's decoupling. But of course, the big institutional investors will then just invest in them. You know, U.S. institutional investors will go to Hong Kong and invest in them through the Hong Kong market. So you may, uh, you know, you may net out just a, it could be a wash. But that's to your point about the comprehensive, the, the need for a com comprehensive look. If you're just looking at Chinese firms listing on U.S. equity markets, we could see a decoupling trend, but of course, if you pull in all the aggregate factors, you may see either, you know, either there's there's no sort of net decoupling or or just moderate, you know, movements one way or the other. But anyway, that was that was a great answer. Appreciate that. Let's then help folks by just level setting here on where U.S. China trade relations are. We were in a trade war. Are we still in a trade war? Are we in a trade peace? Are, are we in a trade standoff? Where do things stand now, in your view? At best, you can call it an armistice in a trade war. But if you think of the, you know, whether uh, you're in a trade war by whether tariffs are high or low, right? Most of the tariffs that the U.S. and China put on each, each other's goods in 2018, 2019, most of them stay in place, uh, even after the phase one trade deal. Um, they just suspended escalation and, you know, made some other sort of uh, side agreements, right? So yes, very much in the, in the heat of this conflict still. And the overall sort of situation is that I think we're in a war I tend to teach the trade war in terms of a war of attrition, right, where the two sides are deadlocked over a set of political goals that they're trying to accomplish, right? And they're trying to inflict economic costs on the other side um, in the form of tariffs, in the form of other economic sanctions in order to achieve some of those goals. But there's very little movement on the political goals, right? And that's going to come into focus by the end of this year um, when the phase one trade deal is going set to expire and the Biden administration will have this choice about what to do about tariffs now, right? Do you try to negotiate another round 
of you know tariff suspensions. Do you increase tariffs? Do you decrease them? And a lot of that is going to be on whether or not you you, you adjust tariffs. A lot of that is going to de- uh, depend, I think, on how you see tariffs as playing a role in in this uh, war of attrition. And I see that as contrary to to I guess uh, you know World War One in the trenches with soldiers firing at each other with with guns. One of the big differences in this war of attrition is that the weapons that are being used cause a lot of collateral damage, right? Tariffs are more like mustard gas, right? You, they have an area of effect sort of of damage, and we are sort of lobbying this back and forth at each other. And, you know, it is hard to tabulate sort of economic gains and losses purely on if you you assume that tariffs only hurt the other side. What what are some points I want to highlight? So, so uh, one is basically there's a lot of collateral damage, um, right? Tariffs cause a lot of collateral damage because they hurt the consumers and, and companies in your own country as well as uh, the other. uh Jack, can I interject? I want to ask you a question on this because one of the confusing things for me is how a stick with the, the mustard gas analogy. This is mustard gas that is not unleashed technically by the opponent. It's mustard gas that you unleash on yourself because when, and this was the point that was, I think for many people knew during the Trump administration when it was pointed out that tariff is simply a tax on consumers in your own market. How do we understand a tariff in the setting of, as you framed it, this is a war of attrition where you're using tariff to push a political goal. How has it come to be that a self-imposed tax ends up imposing or, or is hoped to impose a cost on the other trading partner? Why isn't it seen even by the initiator of the tariff as what it is, which is a welfare loss for your own population. You're absolutely right, right? A tariff is a is a tax on imports, most directly, right, by the by the company that's doing that exchange, and then they may uh, and they do pass on a significant portion of that cost to the ultimate consumer of the product. And I think, you know, a lot of the confusion behind politics of the trade war is this idea that governments could sort of turn on or off trade and investment flows kind of like a spigot, right? Because the the a lot of the justification behind tariffs was that by imposing these costs, we will increase the incentives for multinational companies to relocate or readjust their supply chains to be ideally move back to the United States, but short of that, at least move out of China, right? And that was kind of the motivation behind this project that we looked into, which is, okay, so because, you know, tariffs do increase the cost of doing business, right? If you're shipping the same widget out of China to the United States, it will cost more to import that good than if you build it, say, in Vietnam, right? And so a lot of, I think on the policy side, a lot of folks thought that, well, by imposing these tariffs, we are going to adjust the incentives of the companies that are operating in China who were there and and outsourced jobs in the first place and hope to incentivize them to do something different with their supply chains, right? Adjust the supply chains, diversify them so that there's less of a China component, specifically less of a made in China 2025, right, which is the explicit sort of criteria. Are these companies benefiting industries in China that are being propped up by the state? But in reality, what we saw, right, and all of that sounds good on paper, right? If you can incentivize American companies to come back by raising um, raising their costs marginally, that would be a good, you know, good thing from a U.S. policy perspective. I think the problem is that nowhere in that logic, right, which is a very U.S.-China logic, do the incentives and sort of the behavior of multinational companies, these very large firms that are operating across borders, come into, you know, into play. And we can unpack that a little bit further and talk about sort of 
why that matters, right? Why multinationals didn't just kind of follow the flag and heed to policymakers' wishes. Yeah, let's transition into the guts of the work you've been doing recently. Maybe just for a moment, can you describe, before I have you lay out the argument, the data set that you were using? This is this foreign invested enterprise in China data set, FIEC. What is that and how is that gathered? Yeah, so here I have to really sing the praises of my co-author, Sam Vorthrums at, at uh, UCI, because this is her, um, this data set is, is a huge contribution that, that she's made to, to the field. And it is based on uh, foreign companies in China have to register every year with the Ministry of Commerce. And so Sam and her team scraped all of these registry files and uh, was able to extract out sort of the company, you know, name, their investment size, the industry they're operating in, how many foreign investors they had, what percentage of foreign investment and so forth from these forms. So essentially, the data set is a census of foreign invested enterprises, FIEs as called in the China parlance, right? But multinationals, basically, we're talking about multinational corporations that are operating in China. If you're in China, you got to register. And we have this data set of uh, registered companies. What we do with this data is then to look at year to year, what are the changes in that registration process? And if you are in the data set one year, and the next year, and the next year, and then 2018 rolls around, and you're not in the data set anymore, we call that an exit, right? So we use this data set, uh, uh, the census of foreign companies in China as a way to calculate whether or not foreign multinationals are divesting or leaving China, the Chinese market. Just as a follow-up, so that's a binary, um, that would not capture uh, operations drawdown or a diminishment in you know, new investments by the company. That would just be a pure binary of if they were registered one year and now they're not, so they're out. But sort of movements along a spectrum of Capital expenditures are X amount one year and Y amount and does not capture those. Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. The data is very fine grained, but it's definitely not sort of perfect or ideal, right? We would like to capture those uh, variations over time. In fact, one thing we noticed, we were going to do something with the investment volumes, right? Because you have to declare how big of the investment you have in a particular year. But then we noticed that a lot of companies just don't, the vast majority of companies don't update that number, <laughs> which which suggests that they probably, when they're doing this required process, they're just resubmitting their form from the past year, right? And so we don't want to read into, right, then you know, volumes and when, whether that's changing. And that, that kind of data is just really hard to get your hands on, right? Because companies are very proprietary about how much they're bringing in and how they spread it across different sort of different projects, different subsidiaries within China itself. But we have, you know, we, we think that this is probably the best proxy that we can we can get of the volumes of investment and how they've changed over time. And I'll, I'll overview that there is a market sort of decrease, right? So you can see in the paper and we have a, um, by the time this, I guess, will be aired, there, there will be a Wilson Center blog post sort of walking through some of this uh, in greater detail, right? But between 2018 and 2019, we do see a overall increase in the in divestments from China, about a 4% uptick, which is notable, right? So the, the trade war is doing something there. But um, we can talk a little bit about whether that means that decoupling is happening or not. Well, why don't you, uh, if you wouldn't mind previewing just the overall argument, uh, which you were just getting into. So walk us through what do we know about, you know, in, in general, how the trade war has affected MNCs and and we're leaving out, of course, there, there's a lot of important elements here which would affect MNC decision making, which, of course, your data doesn't and can't capture, which is 
you know, how supply chain localization, how, you know, Hong Kong national security law, how, you know, there's a whole host of factors which which may also be operative here in in terms of MNC psychology operations we're not capturing. But in, in this good data set that you have, what do we know about how MNCs have been impacted? Yeah, so we look at the trade war as essentially uh, off creating two s- sources of risk for MNCs, macro risk and micro risk. The macro risk is how it changes the playing field for everybody, uh, all four multinationals, and that's primarily in the mechanism of uncertainty, right? Uncertainty about what, you know, the costs of doing business in this environment are, uncertainty about what industries are going to be, you know, hit or targeted. And then micro risk, which is, are you uh, as a company affected, right? So greater uncertainty overall, which is bad for business, right? And then specific risk to you, which is, can we identify companies that are more exposed to tariffs compared to others and uh, sectors that are maybe more exposed to regulation? regulatory changes in the U.S. and Chinese side than others, and does that make a difference, right? And so the the paper essentially is trying to see, you know, the impact of political risk on the net, you know, on the exits uh, of companies, uh, foreign companies in China in that particular year. And what we find is interesting, right? So as I alluded to earlier, there is this uptick in MNC exits in in this short time period, right? We're only looking at up to 2019. So this is pre-COVID. So this is a short run behavior, right? In the immediate aftermath of the imposition of tariffs, do we see an uptick in MNC behavior? And indeed, right, there's a higher rate of exit. But what's puzzling when you unpack this is that the tariffs are contributing to, in, in the models that we run, less than 1% of the predicted probability of exit for a given firm, right? So, you know, as you talked about earlier, right, if you're a normative supportive of decoupling, you can point to that number and you're like, look, you know, we, we got them you know, 4% increase in, in, you know, and that's just the beginning, right? But the problem is, right, if you break into, you know, look in, in detail in the, in the data, what we do is identify firms operating in sectors that are exposed to U.S. or Chinese tariffs, and we compare them against companies that are operating in sectors that are not. And you don't have this market sort of effect, right, that uh, tariff-impacted sort of firms are exiting China at a greater, greater rate. We also look at whether American companies or companies that belong to American allies, right, again, reflecting this coalition of democracies sort of rhetoric around the trade war, well, did that have anything to do with higher pro- probability of exit? And the answer there is no. Again, American companies were no more likely to exit after the imposition of, of, of tariffs and the escalation of tensions than peer investor companies. And U.S. ally companies were, were no more likely. In fact, some, you know, some countries, most notably Japan and Germany, I think actually had slightly lower than average sort of rates of exit. And so, you know, what explains then this, this sort of uptick? And what we found is that the strongest predictors of whether a company leaves or stays in China is how long they've been in China and how big of an investment they have, right? Essentially, the, the degree of entrenchment that they have in China really determines, uh, really seems to sort of drive this. And that's true before and after the trade war. But I think the trade war exacerbates sort of this dynamic that it increases overall churn in the China market such that if you were not well adapted to survive, either because you have stronger political connections, more savvy and operating in China or just 
greater sunk cost that you may decide to, because you read the uh, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the writing on the wall seems bad, you might decide to leave China and, and go somewhere else. Right? We don't have data on where the companies go currently, um, or something we're working on, um, but that's, that's our initial sort of take on how to interpret this data, that the macro risk really drives exit much more so than the micro risk, which is kind of a surprising finding. What industries, and I don't know if this is capturing the data, but of that 4%, what industries are they in? So here again, I think the data is is also super interesting. You would expect if the trade war was doing what it's advertised to do, right, that a lot of the exit would be concentrated in manufacturing and in the information technology sort of sectors. That's not what we see. In manufacturing in particular, the the rates of exit is actually lower than the industry average. So across the board, basically, the the, the answer is across the board, um, exits had increased in, in the wake of the trade war um, is something that we observe. But they, you know, slightly different across industries. You can look at in the paper to get the exact sort of details. But the most the, the thing I want to highlight is that it's not in the industries that are most associated politically with the trade war. It's not in manufacturing. It's not in information technologies. A lot of it is in services, retail and across the board, across the whole sort of spectrum of the economy. I think at the highest are in the extractive industries, but the, the sample is really small there, like mining, for example. What else is going on in China that could also be a causal explanation for this firm exit, right? Because I'm sure coinciding with the imposition of tariffs could be a number of other domestic factors in China, which may also explain firm exit. Do you have any sense of what else could be affecting companies beyond tariffs? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, and I'd love your help in, in helping us brainstorm through this, right? But confounders that we were really worried about was, on the one hand, sort of COVID, and the other is the phase one trade deal, right? And in, in that they change some of the dynamics that are involved. But the current design of the paper, because we're only looking at the short run, doesn't deal with that, what events sort of 2020 and beyond, that really, you know, COVID really throws a wrench into the, the conversations about supply chains and investments. I think the results will hold. That's speculative, right? We haven't looked at that data. We don't have it currently. But the design is also comparing, right, 2019 with 2018 and 17. So you'd have to, if you believe that there's something else changing the dynamics of the Chinese economy, you'd have to say that it's not happening in all three of these years, right, around this window of the trade war. And we did our best and we don't think that there's anything you know, super confounding, right? The the new normal and, and sort of these adjustments happened prior to this period that we're talking about. Um, the slowdown in terms of uh, state investment and some of these macroeconomic changes, I think, predate this window that we're talking about. And so we really believe that comparing these two periods, the biggest thing that changed that really drives a lot of domestic change as well, including like the shift to du- dual circulation is the environment of the, of the trade war, right? This great uncertainty and depending on if you're unlucky, right? Specific things that are happening to your company. Yeah, that's a good question. Of course, I, or a good point. And I can think of, you know, one of the things that's hard to capture is you've got policies that 2015, you know, supply side structural reform, which looks at extractive industries because it was putting essentially policies to cap over capacity and also deleveraging, which while not totally successful, has, you know, crimped some of the funding capabilities of, you know, smaller companies. These take a certain amount of time to sort of gain sufficient traction to where they start to bite. So the hard thing to measure is, you know, you could have, you know, industrial policy begins to ramp up in 2015, 2016. You know, there may be a time lag before you know, foreign FIEs who are competing against domestic companies that are being supported by uh, industrial policy, 
you know, may take a year or two before that, you know, made in China 2025 announced in 2015 starts to filter down and actually start to impact the market or competitive environment for a company. So I can imagine kind of almost like snowball effects that anyone snapshot 2017, 20, you know, it's hard to capture that as a, as a certain sudden change that you could measure a before and after, but could just be a cumulative effect to where by 2018, Depending on the peculiarities of the industry, the company may have decided the competitive environment doesn't work for us anymore because of some sort of domestic factor. But I realize that's outside of the purview of you know what you're able to. Yeah, and you could be right, and I think that could be a mechanism that explains the trends that we see, right? Which is you know there. How do you explain that there are more companies sort of leaving China in the period after, and a lot of it, given that what we know about investment, right, that there there's a longer sort of time sort of cycle. You don't just uh, you know up and leave right away that you will probably be you know, sensitive to trends of what your competitors are doing and so forth. I think that the trade war and the escalation of the trade war and the sort of, we argue there's an exogenous sort of dimension to it, right? Because you remember in DC, the consensus sort of belief in the run-up to it right, was it's a big bluff and that China will give in, right? I think a lot of people thought, uh, including a lot of people in business, thought they will never ever you know, result in tariffs, right? Because both sides will see how damaging that will be and they will back down and a deal will be signed and progress will be made on this. And it didn't happen. I think that, you know, surprised a lot of market actors and surprised a lot of investors. But I think that may have become like a focal point, right? If you were already thinking about maybe leaving China, if you have second thoughts about China, that might be sort of the impetus, right? It won't be a confounding sort of factor for us, these longer running trends that you're talking about, unless it only impacts the 2018 2019 period, and it doesn't apply before or vice versa, right? And I, you know, again, I, it would be great to, to brainstorm about more of these potential sort of confounds, because we are operating on like a difference in differences design of these two time periods, uh, comparing companies across them. So the, the work we just talked about was sort of a binary stay or exit. What else or what other options do companies have to deal with the tariffs? And, and is there any difference between how massive MNCs with deep pockets are able to uh, respond or deal with these versus smaller MNCs operating in China? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. And I think it goes into supporting our central assertion, right, is that it has a lot different companies of different size and resources have different tools available to them in their toolkits and responding to political risk, uh, be that tariffs or be that sort of some of the other things that are happening in the U.S.-China relationship. I should say that in general, right, the rate of exit, you have about 10% of, of registered companies exiting the data set, you know, on a regular basis, right? So there is this uptick, but every year companies are exiting the market. Companies are also entering the market. And we've looked into those numbers as well, right? Whether the the number of new entries dropped. Uh, so we have this alternative measure about um, uh, net um, exits that, that show pretty much the same results. There's, you had actually a, a slight uptick in inbound investments. So it's not just that companies are leaving and then no one's coming back in. But to answer your question, right? So what are the options that companies have if you don't just shut down your operation in China, which is a pretty dramatic sort of option? So we have a follow-up paper that looks into some of these dynamics using the voice exit loyalty sort of framework, right? Given a, a political shock that's adverse to you, what are the options you have? And these three broad buckets are exit, right, which is you leave and you avoid risk sort of that way. You voice, which in this case, we look at the lobbying and the political efforts that are made by MNCs in the United States. So there's uh, 
uh, there's a certain degree we, we, you know, we don't look at China because it's hard to, there's no documented lobbying in China, hard to document lobbying in China, right? And also, you know, the government doesn't seem to be particularly interested in listening to foreign companies. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the trade war in the first place, right? So instead, we look in the United States, right? Um, efforts to change policy on tariffs is something else, else you could do, right? If you if you don't like paying the cost, you could leave, you could make sure that the tariffs change as a policy, right? And then the last category, loyalty, which is where the modal company, the vast majority of companies that we look at uh, are in, is you don't do either of those things, right? You somehow find a way to internally adjust and absorb those costs. And here, the size of the company, I think, really matters. So we find that, you know, size and experience in China predicts each of these kinds of behaviors pretty well. Big companies have government relations teams. They have more uh, easier time lobbying, potentially, right? Um, they also potentially have uh, joint ventures or something like that with a Chinese counterpart. And so they might be shielded from the damages of the trade war that way. And that could reduce um, exit, which we find it does, right? Joint ventures are significantly less likely to exit. They are significantly less likely to lobby in the United States. Their subsidiaries versus sort of large companies. There's this interesting kind of nonlinear relationship about whether you lobby or not. And then within that loyalty sort of category, if you don't try to change the policy and you don't leave China, what are you doing? This is the hardest part to get good quality data on because companies don't widely sort of share right their investment strategies and, and how they change cost structures, right? But um, you can adjust by passing on costs to your consumers. You can adjust by passing on costs to your suppliers, which anecdotally in some of my interviews I've come across, right? If you're a big company, you have a lot of leverage and you can just say, hey, if you know if you want to continue to do business with me, uh, you better shoulder some portion of these costs. And if you know you're the only game in town, that might happen, right? And then lastly, you can try to adjust your, you know, you can diversify your supply chains as as a lot of folks have talked about. But something that we see in the data is that actually really large MNCs already do that. Right? It's your small and medium multinationals, which are large companies in their own right. Only large companies get to do foreign investments. Um, is a consistent sort of finding in our literature, right? But within MNCs, which are typically larger companies than domestic ones, right, you see actually this power distribution, right? Some companies are just much, much larger than others. And the really large, truly global MNCs, your Caterpillars, for example, John Deere, right, um, that you would think are going to be highly impacted and hurt by the trade war, are actually somewhat shielded because they're actually pretty well diversified. They have a lot of presence in China, but they also have a lot of presence elsewhere. I did an interview um, with a chemical uh, a chemicals company that's global, right? And chemicals got, a lot of chemical inputs got, got tariffs put on them. Uh, and they were saying that they could essentially just ship them to subsidiaries around the world and then circumvent tariffs that way. So if you're a big enough company, you have those options available to you. If you're a small and medium-sized company, which is what we find, right, you lack a lot of those potential sort of alternative options, right, such as lobbying and changing, you know, getting a tariff exclusion in the United States, for example. And then you also lack the ability to absorb those costs. Your margins are probably thinner. You can't leverage uh, your suppliers and your customers as well. And so we believe that um, majority of exits are in these companies that are, you know, of small and medium size. Final question, but actually the so what question is, if one of the hoped for outcomes on the U.S. side was that imposition of tariffs would force companies to rethink their operations in China, and, and you're finding that that may have been of limited, uh, not zero, but, but of limited impact, we still have the tariffs in place. There's no real concerted f force here in the United States to, to get rid of the tariffs. There seems to be signals from USTR that the tariffs are a point of leverage, and so we'll 
uh, will reduce them when, when we extract some sort of meaningful concession from China. In, in light of your research, how do you think about uh, phase two? And more importantly, how do you think about the future of tariff as a, as a weapon or a tool for both Beijing and the United States moving forward, given that no one is expecting the tensions to die down uh, anytime soon? This question about whether or not tariffs are political leverage is a really important one. And I think it you know, depends on how you frame the issue, right? You can look at you know, the, the question of tariffs in, in two ways, right? You can weigh the political gains that you might have against, um, you know, against the cost of, of tariffs, or you can look at the cost of tariffs you know, against the collateral damage that it's, it's sort of causing and who is shouldering it. Right. I think the administration, uh, the governments on both sides tend to focus on sort of the, this political dimension. Right. It's not ideal to have this uh, to have these tariffs. But are we able to get any kind of meaningful sort of traction? If if so, if the promise of that is is alive, maybe they're worth it. I think what I was talking about earlier with the war of attrition is that whether that happens or not really depends on this this um, uh, on what multinationals are actually doing. Right. With what we show in our in our data set, which is if the costs of these tariffs are actually not sufficient to change multinational behavior, right, to leave China, especially not the companies that you want to leave, the crucial large MNCs that are global players in supply chains, they are doubling down if, you know, they are expanding their China operations, perhaps at the expense of, you know, smaller rivals that are exiting the market and can't shoulder these costs. They are selling only to the the Chinese market and kind of separating their China operations from the rest of the operations. So what we see in the aggregate statistics is that investment, foreign investment into China has not declined, but increased during the trade war. That net trade, right, is not suffering as a consequence, right, that the trade deficits opened up somewhat. Again, some of that is COVID, right? It's hard to disentangle these things, but definitely not suggestive of the fact that there's a lot of economic adjustments that are happening. At the firm level, where are those costs then being experienced? They're experienced by consumers in both countries, right? We see higher prices that are being paid. Goods that are imported from China are costlier today for American consumers. And, and the, other, the, the other side of that is true for China as well. And you're seeing that in the adjustments that are being paid by the companies that are affected, right? The Your smaller and medium-sized companies, in, in our view, that's uh, shouldering sort of the, the cost of this. So if you view whether or not tariffs are a, a source of leverage in this more comprehensive way and see that the net sort of costs, are they worth the lack of traction or movement on the political side, I think you get to a very different answer. Now, I want to say one more thing, which is it is kind of puzzling, actually, right? If if you've looked at MNCs and their relationship with China for uh, over a significant period of time, right, you'd remember that they were a big force in lobbying to open the China market, right, and getting multinational uh, PNTR passed and, and, you know, the the most favored nation status sort of passed and kind of establishing the modern kind of relationship. I think it's puzzling, or at least part of my research agenda looks at this question of like, why is it that MNCs aren't as effective in pushing back against protectionism as they were in lobbying for trade liberalization? And I think it has to do with the kind of a collective action problem. The opening of China resulted in disproportionate benefits for these large MNCs, and they were willing to pay the political cost and get that, you know, get that done, right? But the the closing of China, the movement towards decoupling, does not have equal costs or, or harm all companies the same. The large companies, if, if you think our data is correct, are able to shoulder these costs and are still operating in China more or less 
unhindered. And so they're not going to try as hard, in our view, to lobby and to change the the tariff policy. I don't think any company really likes it, um, but a very small percentage of companies, a new study by Zhu Boliang and co-authors show like 1% or something of multinationals have actually came out with public statements against tariffs. Right, That's pretty shocking, considering a lot more than 1% benefit from bilateral trade. And so the reason be, be, you know, for this is because tariffs are being uh, the cost of tariffs are really being shouldered by consumers and smaller companies. There, this this cost is diffuse, versus uh, and there's a concentrated sort of group of companies. And and I think Kevin Tai alluded to this in some of her comments, right? That some American companies benefit from tariffs. That if you are in an import competing industry, you lobby hard to have tariffs stay in place, or you know to have new tariffs added. And we observe this as well. And so the political force and will of protectionism is just a lot greater than the coalition of folks who are willing to speak on further sort of a continued openness between U.S. and China trade. Jack, that is a important note uh, on which to end this. And I really appreciate the discussion and also really appreciate your work and look forward to reading uh, more that comes out of uh, your co-authored work and also the Trade War Lab at the University of Kansas. So, Jack Jong, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jude. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 